morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone tuning into this podcast. And I'm delighted to say that for the next 25 minutes, half an hour or so, um, I'm going to delve into um, what an area of project finance that has received a huge amount of a huge amount of attention recently. Um, you, you know, both from the news and also in terms of how it's financed, and that is digital infrastructure. I think, given the last 18 months we've all been through. Um, Having a strong internet connection um, is perhaps the most important commodity that we've that we've you know had to had to um, access. Um, and without it, you know, we've all experienced the whole you know buffering or internet not working, and we've all had those joys. So um, it's really brought into focus uh, digital infrastructure and how it all works, and more importantly, particularly how it's financed. Um, Proxima Research is very pleased earlier this year to publish its uh, inaugural report into digital infrastructure project finance. And I'm delighted to say that um, we were sponsored by uh, both Digital Bridge um, and by SMBC. Um, and part of the, uh, well, the, the focus of the call today is going to be to introduce two people, uh, one from each company, to, to, to really delve into some of the, you know, the report's findings and also some of the wider implications from that. Um, and I think rather than me botch up the introduction for both of these guys, very well known in the industry, it's perhaps better I pass over to them. So Quinn of SNBC, if we come to you first, if you can just give a brief outline as to what your role is, how you've been involved, you know, what the, what you do from a lender's perspective, and also what you're sort of seeing in terms of um, digital infrastructure from a lender's perspective. Hi, Tom. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here to share my thoughts on this podcast. So my name is Quinn Tran. I'm co-head of SNBC's North American Infrastructure Finance Team. Um, SNBC, for those who don't know us, we're one of the three Japanese mega banks with uh, 2.2 trillion in assets. Now, within the infrastructure team, we cover the traditional core infrastructure asset classes, such as transportation, water, social infrastructure. But really over the last five years, we've really begun focusing significantly on digital infrastructure. And it's becoming an increasingly important asset class for us, not just for us as a lender, but also for many of the infrastructure funds and private equity funds who are our, our key clients. Um, because of all of this, we really embraced uh, digital infrastructure as part of the new economy. Uh, the industry dynamics for this sector is undeniably strong, and it's been further proven, as you've said, Tom, through this pandemic. Um, everyone realizes now just how important, critical, and essential uh, the data centers are, the fiber connection, the broadband, really, really as much, uh, almost as, as essential as, say, some of the other traditional um, infrastructure asset classes. So close to five years ago, um, SNBC led the first project financing of a data center in North America. And really the momentum has only grown from there. Um, to give you a sense of the amount of activity that we've seen in the space, in 2020, through the pandemic, uh, we closed on seven digital infrastructure transactions in the Americas alone, uh, in addition to multiple other transactions globally that we've done in Europe, Latin America, and Asia. So the pandemic really did not uh, impact the sector in a negative way. In fact, the impact was, was actually quite positive. We continue to see many funds being raised just to focus on digital infrastructure and also additional money being put forth by infrastructure funds and private equity funds um, to find asset, uh, assets within this, um, within this subsector. So we expect the same level of activity that we've seen over the last five years to really to continue and to grow and to really see the financing aspect of this evolve as investors and lenders become much more comfortable with it as an asset class. 
Thanks, Greta. And, and you know, that was really fascinating. I think having having a lender's perspective, I think it's been really interesting over the next twenty minutes or so. Um, but to the other side of the coin, uh, Tom, how about yourself? If you can introduce who you are, did a bit about Digital Bridge, um, and what have you sort of seen over the last eighteen months in terms of how digital infrastructure has changed? So thanks, Tom. Just that, in starting with the introduction, uh, this is Tom Yanagi. I'm a managing director uh, and the head of debt capital markets for Digital Bridge. Um, digital Bridge is a leading digital infrastructure investment firm focused solely on uh, building businesses and investing in digital infrastructure globally. Uh, we've got $35 billion in assets under management, investing in towers, fiber, data centers, and small cell businesses in the US, Canada, Latin America, Europe, and Asia. Um, through our now 23 platform investments, we own and operate over 440,000 tower assets globally, over 80,000 small cell nodes, over 130,000 root miles of fiber, and over 100 data centers. These businesses are, of course, very capital intensive and access to the financing markets is uh, fundamental to the success of our continuing to grow our businesses and our platform. Um, over the last five years, we've raised over $25 billion in debt financing across multiple markets. And so this uh, being invited to participate in this podcast is uh, really appreciated and on point and important for our platform and the growth of the business going forward. Um, I think, Tom, you led into um, uh, what we're seeing in the business currently and over the last 18 months. And, you know, I think it's interesting from our point of view, and we've been investing in the sector for 20 years now or more, there's been the importance of digital infrastructure has been increasing steadily and consistently over that time. I think the real change over the last 18 months is how the broad recognition if not realization of how fundamental digital infrastructure is to, way, to the way everyone um, lives their daily lives. And so, you know, while people were using their internet connection and their cell phones every day before the pandemic, um, maybe there wasn't as much of a um, of, of thought given to or awareness of all of the infrastructure that needs to be behind that to, to make that work. Maybe over the last 18 months, how important it is to have a reliable connection has become um, more to the forefront. But we really think that this is just a progression of what's been going on in this market for the last um, for the last 20 years. And so, you know, a along with that, um, that greater awareness and um, and recognition of the importance and the need is an increasing um, focus of the capital markets and an increasing um, level of investment and potentially a, a, an increasing of the pace in which digital infrastructure gets rolled out. And I think that's you know, what we see as we look forward over the next five years. Some, you know, some really, sorry, Quinn, go on, please. Sorry, Tom, I just wanted to add to that comment, just being someone who focuses on infrastructure broadly as an asset class. Yeah. Uh, the recognition that this is an essential, it's truly an essential asset for all of us, and I think everyone realizes that now, has really pushed this asset class further into the infrastructure bucket. So I think that in the past few years, whereas some funds or infrastructure so funds may have been sitting on the sidelines debating, okay, is this really something that fits within my fund? Do I really want to put resources 
towards learning a new, what is really a new sector for many. Um, it takes, a, you know, it's quite a steep learning curve. I think with the pandemic and how it's shown that it's truly essential, it's caused those who have been kind of sitting on the sidelines or maybe thinking about it to really view this as essential. And that in itself is bringing in a whole new group of investors and lenders who were not there before. Uh, and that's a really interesting point. And I, when, when I was writing this, I mean, I found it fascinating. And I, just on, on the point there about it being essential, I, I mean, it is now being considered as a, as a fundamental human right to be able to have access to suitable digital infrastructure, um, and at the very least, a mobile phone or an internet connection. Um, and I found that fascinating. And you, we sort of, we're, we're very privileged in the Western world to take that sort of thing for granted, but you realise that that perhaps isn't always the case. And um, I think it's that's only going to go one way. And um, Tom, I think that the points that you made on um, sort of usage and how it's been used, I mean, I was absolutely staggered to see that um, social media is, I mean, I, I, you know, I know how important social media is to a lot of people, but there was some stat recently that I read that it's, if you added up all of the social media usage over the last, over 2020, it equates to 1.3 trillion years um, of everyone globally. And that, to me, is just absolutely eye-watering. And I cannot see that abating in any sort of way. I mean, if anything is going to go the, the opposite way, it's going to keep going. Um, and to, 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 to have suitable infrastructure is only going to go, it, it cannot go the opposite way because people won't be able to sort of continue to operate on the way they do. And I think what was really interesting for me, um, and Quinn, I'm going to come to you first on this, was just how going back to basics a little bit, because I think a lot of people might be interested to know just how project finance does work within digital infrastructure. And it'd be good if you can just go through that for a couple of minutes about how it works, some of the things that you keep an eye out for, how it differs to pay, perhaps say some of the more traditional project finances like coal or, or oil and gas. And are there any nuances to it? Yes, so we we got into um, the data center sector via project finance because we were working on a hyperscale data center asset. And when we looked at the opportunity that was being presented to us, we realized that the hyperscale asset actually had very, very strong characteristics that made it very well suited for project financing. So those of us in project finance know that what you need for a good project financing and to be competitive is you need a long-term contract and you need strong counterparties. Now, if you're talking about a hyperscale data center, you can essentially check those boxes, especially if you're talking about uh, an asset within North America where the contracts that have been signed or the leases that have been signed by the likes of Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook have been anywhere between 10 and 20 years. So you've checked those two boxes, right? And so the next thing that we have to do is then size the debt based on the cash flow that is generated by that single contract, and then analyze how stable is that revenue stream and what's the likelihood of potential reductions to that revenue stream. So that's where the challenge comes in if you're looking at a data center for the first time. Uh, you realize that you kind of have a vague sense of how data centers work, but not really. You know that they store the data that you're using, but what's the likelihood of a deduction in the, uh, in the availability payments, right? If you have a power plant, Many project finance lenders can kind of assess the risk of a power plant going down and what's the likelihood of being up 95% or not. If you're looking at a data center for the first time and you're reading the lease and it says you have to be up 99.999%, it's a little bit scary if you don't understand all the uh, redundancies that have been, been built into the data center. So doing that analysis and seeing what is the O&M component of it. 
But having gone through all that, I think it's a very strong asset class to be financed um, via project financing. Project finance is, is really well suited for construction. Um, the construction risk for a data center is relatively simple and straightforward. Um, if you're comparing it to some of the other projects that we do, such as bridges and tunnels, it's extremely straightforward. Uh, one of the issues that we did face when looking at these projects from a construction perspective is that we're used to having very large uh, multinational contractors on our big infrastructure projects. If you're looking at a data center project financing, it's a relatively small contractor. They're not going to have hundreds and millions uh, in revenues. So what then you have to rely, and they, they won't be able to provide the typical construction security packages that we would see, that project finance lenders would see. So you have to get over that and accept that and kind of rely more on the their capabilities, how many data centers have they built uh, in the past and have they been on time and on budget. So it fits nicely from a credit perspective, but the way the O&M risk and the construction risk and the, the profile of the construction contractors are a little bit different from what we would typically see as a project finance lender. So in doing your first few, those are some of the issues that need to be addressed uh, with, with credit. And what about, so it sounds, um, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm sure it's, well, I know it's a lot more complicated, sort of a checkbox exercise, but I think that's the term you use, but it sounded relatively, um, like a relatively strong asset class to invest in, particularly from project finance. So what would be the strongest, or what would be perhaps some of the risks that you, or maybe red flags that you would think, okay, perhaps maybe not this specific type of project. And is there, are there more, because I mean, we're talking about digital infrastructure, we are talking broadly here, but we're talking, you know, satellites or communication or 5G, there's loads of different subsectors. Are there any of the subsectors that are perhaps more difficult to project finance than others? Um, and if so, why perhaps those compared to, compared to some of its, uh, you know, it, it, some of its cousins? Right, so we, we've not only just done project financing, project financing was how we got started with the hyperscale data center. We really evolved into kind of looking at the specific asset and also what the needs of the sponsor are and overlaying the, the, the financing on top of that. So we've moved beyond project finance to say leverage financing, real estate financing, securitizations, mm -hmm. um, JV financings. The project financing really works well and we're competitive in project financing if there is a strong uh, contract and a strong counterparty. If you're looking at fiber or subsea cables where, or um, co-location data centers even, where you don't have long-term contracts and where the counterparties are not always investment grade, we can certainly finance those, but they just won't be project finance, right? Because in, in those situations, we would look more for kind of a diversification of the customer base. Mm -hmm. You know, what has been the history with the customer base? Is there a lot of churn? Are there lots of cancellations or have they continuously been renewed? So certain of the subsectors um, fit neatly into a project finance bucket and some of them we can always find other ways um, to structure around. And, and Tom, I think what was really interesting was when, when you went through the, um, when you went through the report, just to provide comments for it public, you, you, you brought to sort of my attention, it's quite easy to get tunnel vision here, but project financing, and as Quinn has just touched upon, is, is it is only one way to, to do this. And I think it'd be quite interesting if you could just touch on a couple of the other ways or perhaps maybe non-lender route that, that, would, that is also applicable in this area. And what are some of the points of commonality perhaps with project financing and why might it work together? And also maybe some of the challenges as well. Yeah, well, uh, you know, Quinn hit on, on some of the points. I think 
you know, when you talk about project finance, like traditional project finance, uh, you're thinking about um, long-term contract you're uh, with the investment grade customer or customers. You're talking about, um, uh, you know, EPC contracts and whatnot. And really that probably um, narrows the focus for the most part to um, greenfield development of hyperscale data centers, which is a important part of the overall ecosystem and a substantial capital investment opportunity over the coming couple of years. But it's only one part of the overall ecosystem. And even if we don't get outside of the what I consider the kind of traditional or core digital infrastructure, you know, towers, data centers, fiber, small cell, um, even if you don't you know, go to satellite or some of the others that you subsea or some of the others that you mentioned, um, uh, you, you know, that's that that uh, hyperscale data center focus is, is uh, just one small piece of the overall. And so, you know, when we're thinking about financing, um, we're thinking about the business, we're thinking about the business plan and uh, plans for, for um, capital reinvestment, distributions, et cetera. We're thinking about the geography the currency, the capacity for that currency in a particular market. And so, you know, we kind of run the gamut with respect to taking what the market will give us and then seeking to pioneer some structures along the way. So, you know, we, we've financed in relationship terminal A, institutional terminal B, secured notes, unsecured bonds, private credit, uh, asset-backed securitization, which which we've pioneered in a lot of ways in, in some of these sectors in, in towers and, and data centers and uh, small cells. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, as this evolves, um, I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how Project Finance thinks about it. Because as Quinn said, the first step with many of these capital providers who are new to the sector um, you know, discounting a long-term contract with a uh, um, investment-grade counterparty is maybe an easier way to get comfort in a sector that otherwise has these fantastic secular tailwinds and a lot of of um, reason to be comfortable with the um, stability of the cash flows but it requires a much deeper understanding of what the service delivery levels need to be, what the diversity of customers needs to be, how sticky they are, how important is having access to that deployment in a data center to the revenue generation of that customer? How comfortable can I get with an enterprise data center business that has maybe 1800 customers rather than 18 customers or five customers or one? So, you know, that becomes a, um, a uh, probably evolutionary understanding in the project finance market that maybe will seek, you know, will will manifest in broadening the application for where someone like me can access and use the project finance market. Because, um, at, you know, w where we are today, I, I think, um, you know, project finance has a small role in my overall opportunity to finance businesses focused mainly on development of hyperscale you know, um, uh, data centers with a, you know, almost in a built to suit way with a long-term signed contract with the customer. Yeah, that's really, really, neat, really neatly summed up there in terms of the differences um, between the, you know, the different types of lending, you know, Quinn, from a, from a, um, a, you know, bank's perspective and then Tom from the sort of the, the lesser bank side. And I think, um, 
what, what was really interesting to me when, when I was going through this was, and just having conversations with different people was just the range of options that are available, but equally, um, if the project's not right, how few those become really quickly. I, I, mean, I know Quinn touched on a couple of them in terms of um, some of the more difficult areas, you know, if they're not investment grade, then you automatically go, you know, you take project finance um, off of the, off the, um, off the table. And so perhaps maybe other areas become more central, but again, so many questions come up and that was really interesting for me was, um, there are so many options, but also very few depending on the type of project. And I think that's what's really, really interesting about this. And what I did want to just touch on for the last few minutes is just what we've done, I guess, over the, well, particularly for the report and, you know, all three of us recognize the the importance of digital infrastructure. It's been mentioned a few times how it's just going to take off. But what are some of the risks? I mean, what are the biggest red flags, I guess, that are going to potentially cause damage to this to the, to the sector? Um, and how damaging do we think those are being? How do you mitigate against those? I mean, you know, none of the sectors are without these problems. Um, and what are some of the things that people need to be looking for and Quinn if we come to you first from a, from a from a bank lender's perspective what are what are some of those how are you mitigating against those risks um and what impact could they have if they went unchecked yes i mean one of the things that we saw that that really stands out for this sector is that it's i'll just take the data center subsector it's, it's a truly global market um so we've seen you know investors like like tom here digital bridge they have um, investments globally. And then when we're working in the data center space, our US-based developers, you know, we started our relationships with them building in North America, but then we have really supported them as they've gone overseas um, into Europe, into Asia, into Latin America. But as they go into kind of further markets um, where there may be markets where the funds are not as readily available. So you're looking at assets where they're receiving revenues and having O&M costs and local currency, but then the financing may not be available in that local currency. So how do you tap that local financing market or how do you swap um, the risk between the funds being provided in another currency and then the operations being, uh, it being in the local currency? So that, that needs to be addressed and that complicates obviously any transaction structure that, that, that you have. And then as you go into, as some of the developers go into markets overseas, such as Japan and India, we're really seeing that it's truly important to have a local partner if you don't have a presence in, in that region. And this mainly being one, to source the land and the power that's needed, um, especially for a data center. And then two, once you have sourced the land and power and you've signed that lease, to make sure that you have a local partner there available to make sure that the construction progresses as planned, uh, especially with regard to permitting and utility planning and all of that. Because once you've signed at least with Microsoft and they expect you to be up and running in nine to 12 months and you're not, obviously that's that's a big issue. So as these, um, as these assets kind of spread globally into markets that are not as strong from a financing perspective and also from local partnering, we need to keep a closer eye on all of that. Uh, and then the, you know, obviously with any sector that becomes an it sector, which I would say digital infrastructure is now with the heavy attention on it from investors, 
there's always the concern, and I'm sure Tom will talk about this, about expanding multiples, right? And making sure that whoever you're supporting and that, or that you're not paying too much for any particular asset and doing the proper due diligence um, to make sure that you're determining the true value of the asset and really believing in the growth story that's being built in. And that's particularly true of things like fiber, for example, where you're building out networks um, across a region. Yeah, really interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, some of the things <clears throat> that you said, uh, you know, really, you know, around sort of a local partner and, you know, perhaps throwing local currency as well, depending on what sort of project it is. And they, they, they are well, these are things that, you know, um, difficulties that come up in other areas. But I do feel sometimes having go going through these, they often get overlooked and, and um, dismissed sometimes to give them the size of the project. And people think, oh, well, you know, this is such an important project, it has to exist. But they often get overlooked. And I think the points that you raised are really important to, to always remember that, they, that there are difficulties here, particularly when you're going into perhaps emerging markets. And um, so, yeah, you know, really interesting to hear that. And, and Tom, just, just over to you, um, from your perspective, from an investor's perspective, what are some of the um, biggest challenges you think you'll face and perhaps some of the risks and how will you mitigate against them over the next few years? Yeah, well, in, in the first instance, I think one of the things that Quinn mentioned at the outset is really important is that, um, you know, th th there's uh, a substantially higher in, uh, interest in the sector and focus on the sector and associated capital coming in uh, than there might have been two years ago with, um, you know, many uh, investor types or groups uh, who don't necessarily have experience in the digital infrastructure sector kind of trying to get up the curve and and uh, and and getting exposure to the sector, you know these businesses are are often much more operational than a you know traditional core infrastructure business, a toll road as an example. And so um, the uh, um, experience of the sponsors and the management team, I think we think we believe provides us a great competitive advantage versus some of the other capital coming into these businesses that might quite likely will make the difference between uh, an investment that is an okay investment and, and a great investment. It, you know, the, the sector obviously benefits from very strong secular tailwinds, but there also are uh, operational complexities, um, differences of competitive landscape within uh, um, particular geographies. Uh, uh, there's all of the geopolitical aspects that I think Quinn was sort of um, uh, touching on a little bit that that are considerations. And I think, uh, you know, that that probably does manifest itself in some of the um, uh, uplift in pricing and valuation uh, that we're seeing across across the sector uh, with risk that there's not real differentiation in the context of um, what assets that maybe broadly fit into the sector deserve a utility-like multiple versus what um, businesses may not deserve that type of, of evaluation. And so I think there is, you know, from an investor perspective and maybe from a lender perspective, there is a risk over the coming couple of years that there's going to be a flood of new inexperienced capital into the sector that's going to have an impact that um, and, and an associated risk created um, where uh, where you know people are getting behind folks that don't have the experience, the management expertise, the relationships, the ability to bring in 
um, um, uh, experienced successful management teams to manage through and to operate these businesses as well as to, to evaluate and price them. Yeah, again, you know, it's a real shame that we've, we've only got half an hour to discuss this because I'm sure we could talk for hours on this. And there's some, there's some really interesting stuff there. But I, I, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to call it a day there. Um, thank you so much, both of you guys, for speaking to me. I'm sure anyone listening um, who is interested in knowing more, please, please do get in touch with, with myself or anyone else at Proximo to understand a little bit more, not just about digital infrastructure, but also the, the other reports that we do. And I'm sure Tom um, and Quinn would be more than happy to, to hear from you guys if you're interested to know more about this subject. It's only going in one direction. It's really taking off. Um, and I want to just extend my thanks again to Quinn and to Tom for, for taking the time to speak to me. It's been fascinating. Um, and I hope at some point we may even get to have a discussion face to face, who knows, in the good old days of physical events. Um, so thank you guys. Um, stay safe, everyone. And hopefully see you guys soon. Thanks very much.